Hi, Pastor Ryan here. The message you're about to hear is a little unusual in that it's highly conversational in tone as an effort to show how one might respond in a real conversation with a real person who has real questions. In other words, it's meant to train and prepare us to go and share our faith with our neighbors in the workplace and in the real world. I hope it prepares you and encourages you. God bless. Lately, just to find out what's really going on in somebody's life, what's going on on the inside, I've been asking this question. Just putting God aside for the moment, what's the greatest obstacle in your life right now? What's the thing tripping you up in your life right now? And a number of months ago, I was about to ask this of a woman at a coffee shop, and I had no need to do that because her, her disposition of, of gritted teeth, clenched hands, the murmur under her breath, pretty much said plenty. She was, she was upset, ticked, cheesed off. And I asked her, hey, you know, what's wrong? She wanted to explain that her work environment had grown incredibly tense in the aftermath of the proposed community enhancement fee. Uh, she had a small business which employed both expats, people who were not citizens of Grand Cayman, and, and Kamanians. And if you're unfamiliar, this fee was intended to institute a 10% payroll tax for all uh, non kamanian expat residents. The proposed tax, which never came to fruition, caused uh, obvious fracturing and work relations uh, where she worked. And in her, her opinion, as a uh, Kamanian business owner, the proposed tax was not intended to provide a genuine benefit to the community, but in her opinion was a political ploy. As she was explaining this to me, she concluded, look, uh, it's just caused unnecessary harm where I work. And I feel like someone should pay. Who's it going to be? It's a fair question. Right? Why should those not responsible for an apparent wrong in life pay for it? Yet we know from experience that someone has to pay. It's the way the world works. For every action, there's a cost. It's a question, really, of justice. And it's a question I'd like to explore with you this morning because it's one that's, that's very relevant, I think, not only in this woman's life, but maybe in your life. Maybe in the lives of someone you know and love. I think one reason for this is in this Western world we live in, there's a forgiveness fatigue. Lots of forgiveness, little justice. When I was growing up, the main attractive quality of God was his relatability. His being a father and a friend. Because so many people had primarily experienced so much rigidity, so much harshness, even judgment about God from Christians and in churches. But that has changed. Whether it's forgiving too many financial debts or being quick to forgive the egregious, the most egregious sins of our leaders, we've experienced the cost of forgiving without cost. Don't you think? I mean, think about this whole Lance Armstrong thing. You sports fans out there are familiar with this. I mean, aren't you, don't you just want to be like, I don't want to forgive him. I mean, I'm just tired of it. People lying and lying, but we always seem to forgive eventually. And one prominent critic of America 
says, for instance, the USA has come to stand for the United States of amnesia. <laughs> right? I think that's pretty much true. Uh, we just, and the Western world in general is just starting to, you know, we just eventually forget and everything's okay. Just give it time. And I think one of the reasons we're fatigued with this forgiveness without cost is the rise of globalism. We can look into injustices all over the world now through internet and other media resources to the point where people are less wondering if God is a softy who will forgive and more wondering if he is a big God who will make the wrong things right again and act against all those who have taken for granted the forgiveness and the mercy shown to them. Will God act against those people? Is he big enough for that? To summarize my point, consider it in the 80s and 90s that the public found compelling a spiritual movie called The Mission uh, featuring a tough guy turned softy for Jesus. Robert De Niro, he goes soft for Jesus, all right? Whereas today, what's more compelling is a movie called The Machine Gun Preacher featuring a softy turned tough guy for Jesus. All right, that's kind of what we want to see. Everything costs something. Today, and too often in this world of ours, the wrong people are paying. Don't you think? Does it feel like the wrong people are paying? So before I seek, I want to explain Christianity's response to this. But before I do, I want to turn the question to you and ask you how you respond to these things. How do you respond to injustice? And I think you'll find people usually come back with a few responses, a few different responses. One is that, man, you just got to let it go. It's not going to help. The idea of forgiveness without cost. People often deal with a clearly unjust act by blaming it on injustices done in the violator's life, right? It's just because of a poor childhood, because of unjust living conditions. It's, It's the media's influence on this kind of person who's done this. So we blame other things and and, and past injustices, saying, you know, they probably never experienced real love or real forgiveness, which might be true. The problem, though, is it may work for an isolated incident, but it provides no tangible solution to make right those individual or systematic kinds of wrongs. And that's what justice is, right? Justice is restoring rightness through restitution. I think it's a fair definition. Restoring rightness to a person, to a society, through some kind of restitution, some kind of payback. That's the first response people often get. Got to let it go. But another one is, man, somebody's got to pay. That's justice, but without mercy. And we say we like this. Someone's got to pay. We want this. But when we press it, consistently, and in every situation, it feels, feels cold, doesn't it? Almost inhuman. If you always press that justice. It's like watching a parent. Do you ever watch a parent who is just towards their children, punishing them, rigid about following what the parent asks of him or her, and you watch it, and on some level it's right, but another level you're like, man, that just feels cold. It's just... There's a third response where people just kind of throw up their arms and say, well, I guess you've got to have a balance. We often say this about many of our problems in life is, well, you've just got to have a balance. The 
problem is people can't show both mercy and justice in the same instance. Think about it. Justice is getting what is deserved, while mercy is not getting what is deserved. You can't both get and not get punished at the same time, right? I'm pretty sure that's not true, unless you're schizophrenic. All right, it just doesn't happen. Consider for a moment, if someone was to break into your home and steal something valuable from you, all right, how can you make it right again? Just think about that scenario. Someone breaks into your home, steals something, how do you make it right again? In the responses I just gave, you can completely let it go, and you just don't press charges. But it doesn't make things automatically right, does it? You're worried, will the person return? Will they come back for more? Right, your trust is violated, so maybe you, you lock your doors more, certainly than you used to. And if you have kids, especially so, maybe months before the nightmares cease, right, or, or months before they sleep in their own beds again. But you can go another direction. You can make them pay, right, to press charges to the full extent of the law. But there's no guarantee this will make things right. Will that person be reformed? Should they go to jail? And if they go to jail, they might leave behind a family, without a father figure, for years. How about, how about that? Does that completely solve the problem? How are you going to balance this one out, though? How would you balance out the scenario between justice and mercy? I would suggest, friends, that there's one way. There is one key, okay? The situation, in fact, I've just described, the scenario is the pivotal moment in the classic Victor Hugo novel turned... More recently, current movie musical, Les Miserables. All right, Les Mis. Anyone out there see Les Mis? All right, so a few of you. Jean Valjean, who's the protagonist in this movie, lives much of his adult life helping others, using his wealth and his influence to exercise justice for the disadvantaged. He's a former hardened criminal, so what motivated him? What set him on a course of social justice? A Christian bishop did. A Christian bishop from whom Valjean steals his silverware in the middle of the night. This, this bishop takes him in, feeds him, lets him sleep overnight, having I mean, getting out of, out of basically his version of jail, the mines. And he, in the middle of the night, steals his silverware, an incredibly valuable possession in those days, if not today. He's caught by the police, after stealing it. And the police bring Valjean back to Bishop Muriel. And before the police, in their presence, the bishop presses Valjean to take the two candlesticks, the two silver candlesticks as well. Why didn't you take these? And the police believe the ruse. Here's a case in which justice and mercy work in perfect harmony. Why? The key to justice and mercy operating in harmony is sacrifice. Sacrifice. It's the only way it works. Everything costs something. And merciful justice works when an innocent person pays the cost for the guilty. In this case for the bishop, more silverware. More of his most valuable possession. 
What I want to persuade you of is that the God of the Bible is the only God and the only life system that could be simultaneously merciful and just at the same time. So I'm hoping you, you would just take a few minutes to read with me about this in the Bible and how God is like this. If you would, I would hand you a Bible, but I can't because that would take probably an hour to hand each of you one Bible. We got some Bibles for you in these black chair pockets. If you can just grab one or at the end of your rows and turn to Romans chapter 3. The Apostle Paul's letter to the Roman church, chapter 3, you're going to start in verse 19 and read through verse 26. This is what a guy who loves Jesus, the Apostle Paul, says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being can be justified, declared just in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin or wrongdoing. But now the righteousness of God, in other words, the how to get right with God, has been manifested, it's been made clear, apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets, in other words, the Bible, bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation. I'll explain that in a little bit. By his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of one who has trusted in Jesus or has faith in Jesus. There are a lot of complicated words in there, I understand. Lots of gibbledy-gabbledy stuff, which since you're in church, you might say, yes, I know what that is, amen. But if if we're honest, we have no clue what it said. But I think we could sift out a few basic ideas that will help us understand Christianity's response to injustice. And the first response I think we find here is that God starts by showing everyone mercy. If you look in the middle of verse 25, it says this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. God didn't immediately dole out judgment for sin. Even though humanity decided to say no to God pretty much right out of the womb, we say no to God. So we might deserve it, but we don't get it. Rather, people much smarter than I pretty much agree that what's being said here is that God is forbearing. He is patient with each of us, giving us time to figure out that something's seriously wrong with our lives and that we're needing God's help. He gives us that time. To some, he gives some more years than others. But he does give us time to figure that out. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. It needs to be made right. How will that happen? That helps us even understand the Christian idea of hell. Hell is where God gives up. He's allowed you time. He's given you time. And ultimately, you're stuck with what you choose in this life. And if it's a life without God, well, that's what you get. For the rest of eternity. Second response I think we see in this passage 
to injustice that Christianity gives is that God is why we all possess this desire, this inner desire for justice. The Apostle Paul works kind of backwards here. He, he starts with the best example of justice with which everybody's familiar, even in his day, and that is the law. That reminds us more than anything of justice, right? And so he says here in verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. First, he talks about people who are under the law. This would be Jewish people who know God's law from the Old Testament and the deal God makes with them to generally bless them as they obey that law. But in the second half of the verse, Paul says everyone's going to shut up and listen and be held accountable for keeping the law. And you might think, well, how is that possible? Some people haven't read the Jewish Old Testament law. How can they be held accountable? Paul tells us why that is. The answer is found earlier in one chapter before in Romans chapter 2, where Paul says that all people have a kind of moral law written on their consciences. All people are aware that there's a morality. All societies have upheld the immorality, for instance, of murder, stealing, lying, disrespecting of spouses and parents. I'm confident you feel the same way. We're fair that God has written his law in, in that sort of DNA, the spirit, the conscience of each person. We all know those things are wrong. And there's a reason we help me know that. God has given us this moral law in all of us. But there's another thing we learn here. That's the law is regularly broken. Right? He kind of talks about that in verse 20. The law is broken. In fact, this is how we find out that we, in general, need help. The law reveals sin. We need help. Law reminds us that we have something in us that keeps us straying from what is good and what is right and what is just. The good news is, though, God is fair about it. Very fair about it. He doesn't draw these sort of fine, arbitrary lines between the not-too-bad person and the little-bit-worse person and the maybe-somewhere-in-between person who does this on the one hand but that on the other Instead, he says, look at this in the middle of verse 22. He says, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the perfection and the justice, the glory of God. So he doesn't make these sort of distinctions. And that's important to know that God is just. Now, that we care about this, that we care about justice, that we care about the law, that we care about our inability to remain just is because we as human beings are uniquely made in God's image, the Bible tells us. We are unique among creatures in that we are like God in every way, but in lesser degree. So we reason multiple steps ahead. All right, and That's pretty impressive for any kind of animal to do, to reason multiple steps ahead. But God knows the entire future. So he reasons like many steps ahead, we'll say infinite. We can exercise loving rule over a family, over nature. God exercises loving rule over universes and galaxies. Similarly, all humanity desires justice just in lesser degree than God, who is just, who sets the standard. And that we're made in God's image and so desire justice is evidenced in, in, in a number of things in life. For instance, uh, for a long time, the execution of Saddam Hussein was the most watched YouTube video in history 
Because people, why? Wanted to witness that justice was enforced. They wanted to see this for themselves. I don't know how it ended up on YouTube, but it did. And now it's been replaced by Gangnam Style. I mean, which I have no explanation for, really. Just, (laughs) right. So it's also evidence of the fact that justice is doled out in prisons uh, to those who've committed crimes against children, against the most vulnerable, because even the most hardened, unjust criminals recognize a need for justice. And so when you hurt a child, people in prison take care of you. Why? They recognize there's a need for justice. Even people who you would consider unjust. We recognize this, though, on a smaller level in our daily life. What happens when a friend stands you up or slights you? Or rips you for some reason? What do you do? You consider sliding them back. Ripping them back. Or you give them the silent treatment, if you're married. Uh, or or um, you're, a little bit more, you're a little bit more guarded, right? Maybe it's not extreme. Maybe you're just a little more more guarded towards that person. Why? Because we feel like we need to pay that person back. The problem, though, is that people don't want justice for themselves. Justice for everybody else, mercy for me. Right? Can you think of such an example in your own life? I hope you can. In an honest moment, though, we know that we also are wrong. Something in us is wrong that needs to be made right. Which brings us to the third response that Christianity gives to injustice. And in this passage, the correct injustice. Christianity corrects injustice without sticking you with the bill and without substituting this sort of limp-wristed, wimpy kind of mercy. The key is sacrifice. The key to all of this is sacrifice, specifically an innocent person paying the bill that belonged to a guilty party. But wait a minute, the Bible says there's no distinction. All have fallen short, so all are stuck in having to pay that bill. No one can pay it off. That's why God himself came to earth as a man, to pay a bill that we couldn't. To pay a bill that nobody else can. In this way, God remains strongly, firmly, reliably just, but he can also mercifully activate justice for you. Which leads to one of the coolest descriptions of God in the whole Bible, that he might be just and your justifier. It says in verse 26. Isn't that cool? He could be both just and your justifier if you trust that Jesus can set you right with God. Do you see how this perfectly weds together both mercy and justice? If you don't, think of it this way. A guy named Fiorello LaGuardia. The name sounds familiar. You might know it from New York City. He's the mayor of New York City during the worst days of the United States Depression and all of World War II. Fiorello LaGuardia. It's a colorful character. This guy used to uh, ride the New York City fire trucks. As a mayor, he raided speakeasies with the police. He took entire orphanages, entire orphanages to baseball games. And when the New York City newspapers went on strike, he went on the radio and would read the Sunday comics to kids. Just the kind of guy he was. And one cold night, January 1935, he turned up at a night court, a night court that served the poorest ward of the city. 
LaGuardia dismissed the judge for the evening, and he took over the bench himself. And within a few minutes, a tattered old woman was brought before LaGuardia, charged with stealing a loaf of bread. She told him that her daughter's husband had deserted her. Her daughter was sick, and her two grandchildren were starving. She stole this loaf of bread. But the shopkeeper from whom the bread was stolen you refused to drop the charges, saying, look, Your Honor, it's a real bad neighborhood. It's a real bad neighborhood. She's got to be punished to teach other people around here a lesson. LaGuardia decided, turned to the woman and said, I've got to punish you. The law makes no exception. $10 or 10 days in jail. But even as he pronounced the sentence, the mayor of New York City was already reaching into his pocket, stepping down from his stand. He extracted the bill, tossed it in his famous hat, and said, here is the $10 payment for which I remit. Trusting in Jesus Christ, who stepped down from heaven as an innocent judge to pay your bill, will not only set you right with God, and it will, but it will also, also radically transform your ability to seek justice for other people. Like if you want that for other people's lives, trust in Jesus will radically transform your ability to do that. And if you give me a few more minutes, I'd like to show you how that is. Number one, trusting in Jesus as your, as your justification transforms your work for justice. Number one, because it is more effective and enduring. Your work for justice will be more effective and enduring. Hearing that story about Mayor LaGuardia may cause you to think, man, if... if why can't we as human beings just do that consistently? If we all just sacrificed a little for everyone, it could work. But the problem with this idea is the question of why it is that a person seeks justice in the first place. What spurs a person on to want to right a wrong, whether done to them or done to other people? Anger. Ultimately, when someone notices something's not right, inside the person that, that something's aroused, an edgy determination to do something for them. And this is the problem because unresolved anger, unresolved determination, a gritting of the teeth, wanting to make a difference, but out of a sense of this is not right, cannot be contained. We know this from everyday life. Think about it. When you get frustrated with something, in your life. And, and someone unrelated to the problem interrupts you while you're frustrated or asks you for help. How do you tend to treat that person? You're working to right a, a, maybe even a small wrong in your life. Someone comes to interrupt you're like, you try to be polite, but it's hard not to spread your frustration to the other person. They tend to feel your, your wrath to some extent. So it is when launching into a work for justice, it spills over even to the lives of those who work alongside you. You can't contain it. As it gets harder and you begin to work harder, frustration increases, especially as you begin to wonder, why do so few people show appreciation for what I'm doing here? Or even, why am I the only one helping people here? You get edgier and you get edgier. But when you recognize that there is something unjust inside you, as well as in the world, and that someone has sacrificed to right the wrong in your own life, you can seek justice through enduring sacrifice 
because he can give that hint of mercy because you've been shown enduring mercy through sacrifice. Does that make sense? You've needed mercy. Someone sacrificed for you so you can keep going and sacrificing and do it in mercy because someone sacrificed for you. This is why Christians consistently and unequivocally, and I don't mind saying this, have done the most effective and enduring work for justice throughout history. If you look at history, I really think there's no question, and I would challenge you if you doubt that to, to let, take a look. The reason why is they're empowered by a greater and a higher sacrifice for them. So for instance, William Wilberforce's 36-year fight in the House of Commons to abolish the slave trade throughout Great Britain. He sacrificed his entire professional life and, and never demonized his opponents who staunchly opposed him because he trusted the God who sacrificed for him and didn't give him over to demons. Or Martin Luther King Jr., his life to restore civil rights to all Americans was born out of a realization that he himself received restoration only through a sacrifice of God who gave up all his rights when he came to live and suffer with all human beings. He gave up all his rights. Or, or Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who didn't retire after an exhausting but successful fight to end apartheid in South Africa, but spent, and he sacrificed his retirement years, establishing the Truth and Reconciliation Commission because he trusted in a God who spent himself so he could be reconciled to God forever. See the pattern there? And the beat goes on today, friends. The International Justice Mission, uh, the World Vision, Compassion International. My friends, uh, Jessica, Katie and friends, Jessica and Raja Pulraj, who adopted a child abandoned by his parents due to the many physical abnormalities he had, done because of a greater sacrifice for them and the mercy shown them. Work for justice lasts and makes a difference when one's heart can rest, knowing that he or she is made right with God knowing that a sacrifice has been made for them. So it makes that work for justice more effective, more enduring, but it also makes it more realistic. When you trust Jesus, your justification, it makes the work more realistic. Think about it. Work done for justice is never-ending otherwise. There will always be more. Even Jesus said that the poor will always be among us. So when someone spends themselves on a work, they can really never be satisfied because there will always be more. And justice will keep going on, except for the Christian. The one who trusts in Jesus to set injustice right is also told in the Bible that one day God will set right all the wrongs of the world. He'll make everything right again. And the great thing is, we get hints of that in our world today. Think about it. We get hints all the time. Uh, when we see the beauty of, of K-Man around us, you, you go diving or snorkeling or just go outside, we love it. And yet, we seek other forms of beauty, other places. There's always more. Why? Because we, those things are hints. They're creating us a longing for something even more perfect and more beautiful. And nothing in this world will ever satisfy. My friend Tim Dirksen, telling me about getting to go get some amazing food from a couple guys uh, on Friday from the Food Network who were slicing and dicing some food, and I'm sure it was delicious. We love good food. 
and yet creates us a longing. This is amazing. I kind of want something more. And this is the world around us. This, we see a little bit, of, we hope for the miraculous. We get a taste of the miraculous, and then we long for the day when people are fully healed, fully restored. Similarly, friends, we can give hints of justice to people all around us, which may lead them to long for a justifier, to long for the day when all things will be put right. Does that make sense? So if our goal is to work, we can have a new goal, to to work to give people hints of justice they might long for and seek a justifier, which is much more realistic, right? It's a much more realistic goal. Work for justice as a hint that people might long. Wait a minute. If this is the compassion and the mercy and the sacrifice shown for me, to make my world a little bit more right, man, it'd be great to have my world completely right. And we can tell them how to get there. Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, my hope this morning is that we see the key to experiencing and showing both mercy and justice is sacrifice, which can only be sustained through the example and the power of the cross of Jesus Christ, who justly paid the bill for us so that we wouldn't have to pay it forever. And in doing so, we get mercy. We get a life of eternity with a God that we really didn't probably deserve to be with. If you're here this morning and, and, and you want to make a difference in the world, you want to create change, you want to see justice in this world, but you've been frustrated along the way, you've met roadblocks, and you know that you can't keep going, that at some point you're going to hit a wall. Maybe you've already hit it. Maybe you've hit that wall of frustration and you know what I'm talking about when you sense that anger. Why aren't other people helping? Why does no one show appreciation? Why am I not getting any kind of encouragement here? If you're there, I want to encourage you to trust Jesus Christ as the one who can justify what's wrong in your heart, who can make your heart right and can give you the ability and the empowerment to work for justice, who can help you endure and live for other people. So I pray right now, and maybe if that's you, I I just ask you to consider praying with me. Jesus, I recognize that what I do for other people, my longing to help, my passion, it comes from you because you're a just God. You're perfect. And yet the frustration of not seeing things made well begins in my own heart, Lord, where there's injustice, where I've said no to you, where I've tried to live my life my own way. But I see today that the only way this works, this life works, is with mercy and justice, uh, justice come together. And that happened in Christianity through the cross of Christ. So I want to trust Jesus Christ to make me right, to declare me just with God. I want to trust him. And in believing that, God, I believe that I'm right with you. We pray this, believing you're out there, and that you love us, and you're a strong and just God. Amen.